Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hello and welcome everybody. Um, Welcome to the launch event for Cheryl Schoenhardt Bailey's new book, Deliberative Accountability in Parliamentary Committees, published by Oxford University Press. I've got my copy right here. Um, And I encourage you all to get yours as soon as you can. Um, And thank you so much for joining us today or for listening in later on, if um, that's what you're doing. So I will first introduce our distinguished speakers today. Professor Cheryl Schoenhard Bailey is head of department in the Department of Government at the London School of Economics and Political Science and the author of Deliberative Accountability in Parliamentary Committees. She's a fellow of the British Academy. Her research interests include political economy, deliberation in committees and nonverbal communication. She's also the author of numerous other academic articles as well as several other books, including Deliberating American Monetary Policy, a Textual Analysis, and From the Corn Laws to Free Trade, Interests, Ideas, and Institutions in Historical Perspective. Dr. Stephen Holden Bates is Senior Lecturer in Political Science at the University of Birmingham. His research is in the area of parliamentary studies, focusing mainly on parliamentary roles and parliamentary committees. In this academic year, he's a parliamentary academic fellow in the UK parliament. Lord Andrew Tyree was chair of the Competition and Markets Authority between June 2018 and September 2020, and is a crossbench member of the House of Lords. He was a member of parliament from 1997 until 2017, during which time he served as chairman of the Treasury Select committee. Lastly, I'm your chair for this event, and I'm Dan Berliner, Associate Professor of Political Science and Public Policy here at LSE. So we'll next see a short trailer for the book. Then we will hear from Cheryl to briefly share the main themes of the book with us, followed by the comments from our speakers. Thank you, everyone. Typically, in a democracy, We believe that our politicians and policymakers should be held accountable. But what is accountability? And how would we know good accountability if we saw it? Deliberative accountability is where policymakers explain why they've made their decisions. We've seen an explosion of this in Parliament. And we'd expect it to lead to more trust in the British government. But it doesn't. Why not? I'll come in now. I'm not entirely sure whether the rest of you saw the visuals, which were very attractive uh, for that. Um, You may not have. So our LSE events, people I think will 
sort that out and, and be sure to rectify that. But of course, you all may have been seeing it and, and we on the panel weren't. So we're a little bit uncertain on that. In any case, <clears throat> it wasn't essential and you can always catch on, catch up on the, the book trailer later. Um, so I'm, I'm just going to give a few remarks on the book itself um, and then turn over to our excellent discussants. Um, this was a progress, a book work in progress for about seven years or so. Um, and it, uh, I won't give you the back history to it uh, unless someone asks in the Q&A and then I'd be happy to do so. But in any case, in trying to answer the question, the core question of why we have more accountability, more calls for accountability, more evidence of accountability, and yet over time, the last 40, 50 years, um, declining trust in government, particularly the, the, the British government. Now, let me just say from the outset, it's not a single um, causal explanation that if we were to get magically get accountability all correct, then magically we would have um, uh, a great deal of trust in the, in the British government. But, there, but it is a component. It is a component um, because we like to think that that one product for accountability is that it lends legitimacy to, to policy decisions <clears throat> and to governments more broadly. So, so really the, fo the, the focus of the book tries to get a handle on what we could discern as being quality in accountability and then agree some standard for measuring that so that we would know if we saw it, um, we would be, be able to identify it as such. I'll preface that by saying there are, there's a whole gambit to understanding uh, accountability and all sorts of different kinds of accountability. And so let me say what this book does not look at. So this, this book doesn't look at accountability as placing blame or, or imposing sanctions or penalties or, or constructing paper trails and red tape or even restructuring institutions so that they're more accountable. It doesn't do any of that. So you might think, ah, well, then it's useless. Well, it's not really useless because most scholars who think about both deliberation and accountability think um, or conceptualize a core element of that being the process of reason giving. In other words, from our policymakers, from our politicians, we expect them when asked to be able to justify, to, to explain, to give reasons for why they made the decisions that they made. And so this, this book is really about that reason giving process, which I describe as deliberative accountability. And the focus then is on parliamentary select committees, two in particular, uh, one in the House of Commons, one in the House of Lords, and it's the Treasury Select Committee and the Lords Economic Affairs Committee. And I also focus on a particular area of policy, economic policy making, monetary policy, uh, uh, financial stability and fiscal policy. And so the, the specific focus then is the hearings that are undertaken by these committees when they are holding policymakers and politicians to account. And in looking at that process and trying to ascertain what is good quality deliberative accountability, some immediate questions are, are the questions good questions? So did the parliamentarians ask good questions? And then on the, the, the other side, were the answers good answers? 
Um, and so that's one basic cut into this. So is it quality uh, deliberative accountability? The problem is not everybody would agree on what are good questions, what a good answer and what that might look like. And so I, I propose three metrics to use. One is respect. Do the participants actually respect one another? If they don't, then perhaps everyone else ought to just turn off because if they don't even have a common basic level of respect for one another, then maybe we shouldn't take the process seriously. A second metric is nonpartisanship. And by this, I mean, really, if all that's taking place is a lot of partisan jabs and point scoring, then once again, are we really getting at the reasons for the policy decisions as made? Not likely. A third metric is reciprocity. And by reciprocity, I mean, you have on the one hand questions asked, and then you have on the other hand answers given. Is there a marrying of those two? In other words, do the questions actually answer the answer or do the answers actually answer the questions that are that are posed um, and the way that I go about uh, measuring those or, or assessing those metrics is methodologically three ways looking at what people said looking at the content uh, in terms of the the verbatim transcripts themselves second how they said it nonverbal communication uh, nonverbal behavior, and thirdly, why they said it. And there I look at the interviews, the kind of the motivations behind the participants themselves. So to sort of go back to the basic question of why we see um, perhaps less trust in government when we have greater accountability, it comes down to, in part at least, a misunderstanding or perhaps a poor understanding of what constitutes quality in deliberative accountability. So this is one step in the direction of trying to make that more transparent and measurable. So I'll leave. Thank you so much, Cheryl. So we'll now hear from um, our first uh, commenter. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dan. And um, thank you for inviting me here today, Cheryl. And congratulations on the book. And um, if you didn't, if you weren't able to see the visuals on the trailer, then I would recommend going to see them because uh, whoever OUP did the trailer needs needs to be congratulated as well. It's a, it was it makes it very exciting. So uh, it's an excellent book. Uh, in fact, it's the kind of book that I'd like to be able to write myself. Um, and I'd like to start off by talking about the reasons why I think it's such a good book and the contribution it makes to both political science and to the practice of politics. So first, uh, the book asks old questions, but answers them in new ways. And both of these things are uh, good things, in my opinion. So all the research questions asked are good, solid parliamentary studies questions. So what constitutes high quality deliberative accountability is, in my opinion, a, a proper political science research question. And it could have been asked, maybe not using the language of deliberative accountability, but it could have been asked at any point over the course of the past uh, century or so. Um, but the way Cheryl answers that question and others in the book goes beyond uh, the subdisciplinary boundaries of parliamentary studies uh, and indeed beyond the disciplinary boundaries of political science. So in the book, Cheryl draws on political theory, political sociology, linguistics, uh, political psychology at the very least. There may be other things that she draws on as well. And all of this reminds me of uh, Colin Hayes' 
um, clunky but useful phrase, interdisciplinarity. So Colin says that you often need to ask the same questions, uh, but with a newfound recognition of the complexity of political and social life, you need to move beyond the usual way of doing things to get a fuller picture of what is going on. And this, I think, is exactly what uh, Cheryl does. So secondly, um, the way that Cheryl answers these questions is by using innovative cutting edge techniques, but ones which are entirely appropriate. So um, Cheryl uses quantitative text analysis to examine the what of deliberative accountability. She uses video analysis and experiments uh, to examine the how of deliberative accountability, so the impact of nonverbal behavior, body language, on how participants and audiences uh, receive and respond to interactions within committee. And she uses in-depth elite interviews to explore the why of deliberative accountability. Why did the main political actors behave and respond in the ways that they did? And all of these appro approaches are suitable for the questions she poses. And um, you know, there's no sense of shoehorning a particular approach in just because it's fashionable and or fancy. It, all the techniques are innovative, they're cutting edge, but um, they're entirely appropriate for the research questions that Cheryl asks. And third, to answer these questions, Cheryl also includes very illuminating comparative elements. So not only does she compare parliamentary committees in the Commons and the Lords, but she also compares deliberative accountability across different sub areas of policy. So as, um, as, as she's already mentioned, monetary policy, fiscal policy, and financial stability policy. And I, I really like this latter element, uh, especially because it brings further attention to the context within which accountability and scrutiny takes place, and how this context matters for the effectiveness of accountability and scrutiny procedures. Fourth, the book not only makes an academic contribution, uh, which I'll talk about in a moment, but it also makes a contribution, or at least it makes a potential contribution to the practice of parliamentary politics. So the findings that accountability varies across policy types and across chambers, and thus about where and how deliberative accountability can enhance political legitimacy and where and how it cannot uh, enhance political legitimacy raise a number of important questions. So in no, in no particular order, uh, it raises important questions about transparency within parliamentary committees, uh, more generally about parliamentary rules and procedures, uh, the resources provided to committees, the background skills and abilities of uh, committee members, how different parts of the legislature relate to and complement each other, and the broader relationship between the legislature and the executive. So when the liaison committee does their next inquiry on select committees, I would expect this book to inform a fair chunk of the report. Uh, and this leads me on nicely, I think, to the contribution Shell's book makes to political science. So as we've just heard, Shell argues that she makes a contribution to deliberative scholarship, to accountability scholarship, and to central bank communication scholarship. And, and all of this is correct. Like she does make contributions to these uh, literature literatures. But I think Cheryl's work also makes another contribution, which is not mentioned in the book, 
and that's a contribution it makes to parliamentary studies and specifically research on parliamentary committees. So uh, Shane Martin uh, and also elsewhere, Martin and Nicola, they argued in 2019 that the post-assignment phase of committee activity remains under-analyzed. And in their recent um, editors collections, Sven Siefken and Hilma Romertvet argue that we need to shine a light, uh, we still need to shine a light into the black box of parliamentary committees. So there's a lot of recognition that parliamentary committees are important, but there's not that much academic literature, although it is growing, on what it is that parliamentary committees uh, do, and especially looking at the post-assignment phase of, par of a parliamentary committee activity. And this is exactly what Cheryl's book does. It focuses on the post-assignment phase. It shines a light on, up until now, unilluminated parts of the black box of committees. And it does this by pointing to the different factors that need to be taken into account when considering the effectiveness of deliberative accountability and in turn the effectiveness of parliamentary committees uh, in this regard at least. So factors including institutional rules and cultures in play within the committees, who is asking the questions, who is answering them, how are the questions being asked and answered and which policy areas are being covered. So after reading uh, Cheryl's book, we now know an awful lot more about how committees work and how and why they can be more or less effective in undertaking their scrutiny function than we did previously. And we also know, know more about how committees affect, whether positively or negatively, political trust and how they contribute to the health of democracy. So the book uh, opens up a lot of debate. And uh, when I was reading it, it made me think a lot of things that I wouldn't otherwise have thought. And it's also provoked a, a lot of questions. So what I'd like to do now is ask some of those questions, uh, maybe push back a little on some of the arguments in the book. You know, I don't want to be completely toadying in this, in this response. Um, you know, uh, and also make uh, some requests for what I would like to see included um, in the sequel. So one of the things that the book does very well is help us understand the paradox of more accountability alongside less trust in, in government. Um, and Cheryl argues um, towards the end of the book that there may be a lesson here in the value given to respectful questioning on the part of parliamentarians. The portion of respect in the process of accountability may go some way to enhancing the public's trust in government. But uh, this presupposes that enhancing the public's trust in government is a good thing. But I would like to ask, what if trust is misplaced? So surely it's still um, good deliberative accountability if exchanges highlight poor exp explanations and or a lack of competency on the part of the government, even if those exchanges don't proceed in a respectful, reciprocal manner. So to use an example discussed in the book, um, which is the um, Omni Shambles Cornish Pasty budget, um, which for those of you who don't know, was a budget uh, given by George Osborne, which uh, was seen to be not particularly successful. Uh, one of the interviewees uh, um, quoted in the book says that John Mann single-handedly wrecked that budget. And presumably the exchanges between Mann and Osborne were combative on both sides, which 
according to the, the research findings, leads to audiences tending to view the witness as less persuasive and competent. But if man had asked those questions more respectfully and the witness responded competitively, then the audience would have had a picture of persuasive, persuasiveness and competency that was incorrect. So in this instance, isn't it a good thing that trust in the government decreased because, or it might have decreased, because in this instance, at least, they didn't deserve to be trusted. So I think my question is that, isn't this another example of where we need to take into account the broader context when evaluating the effectiveness of committees and of accountability by looking into the content and quality of policy? So in this instance, we seem to have good effective scrutiny because the committee exposed bad policy, even if political trust decreases as a result. Um, another finding uh, in Cheryl's book is that uh, the process of reason given, giving is better for monetary policy than for fiscal policy. Um, but if I understand correctly, most or all of the sessions on monetary policy are standalone oral evidence sessions that take place after the release of particular Bank of England reports. Whereas most of the fiscal policy sessions are part of a longer process that includes written evidence uh, and leads to a written report, a government response, and maybe even a debate in the House of Commons, or at least nowadays it may lead to a debate in the House of Commons. So are the written exchanges between committee and government and any House of Commons debate still part of deliberative accountability? And if so, what does the quality of deliberative accountability look like when we take into account this broader process? Thirdly, um, one of the things that I'd like to see more uh, uh, in the book, which um, comes from my own research interests more than anything, is to do with gender. So in the book, uh, Cheryl writes, this study has not focused on gender, but the responses of interviewees suggest that this may well offer a fruitful line of future research. Whether or not women are better prepared, less partisan, more helpful, less likely to want to show how smart they are, and more critical of other women, always intriguing questions for uh, another day. And these are like indeed intriguing questions, and I would love to see future work which focuses on them and ones similar to them. So for example, I would love to see the positioning of male and female committee members on the correspondence analysis figures in chapter two, similarly to how um, you position the Labour, Conservative and Lib Dem members. And I'd like to see similar uh, things in terms of ethnicity, in terms of career and educational backgrounds. So I'd, I had a quick look at the backgrounds of uh, um, members in the 2010-2015 uh, Parliament, and you know there are members from business backgrounds. There are members from sort of like professional, um, political backgrounds, and I'd like to see whether that leads to different um, ways of approaching uh, these kinds of um, evidence sessions. And so, basically, what happens when you get more or less diverse membership? And you know, other intriguing questions for another day that the book uh, raises is. So one of the findings that Cheryl uh, um, has is that deliberation is of higher quality in upper chambers and in lower chambers. And I would like to know what impact the fact that peers in the House of Lords are, are appointed rather than elected mates. So are we talking about all upper chambers or are we only talking about appointed upper chambers? 
uh, secondly, in the book, um, uh, some of the interviewees compare the US and the UK. The UK comes out of it uh, well. And I wondered um, in this discussion whether more emphasis should be placed on the deviant nature of the UK committee system, the separation of the legislative and oversight functions that doesn't happen in very many other um, parliamentary committee systems. So anecdotally, a number of people, a number of researchers suggested, have suggested to me that it's the separation between the legislative and the oversight function that means the UK Parliament takes oversight more seriously than elsewhere and contributes to the, the higher quality of um, accountability in terms of oversight. Again, like something perhaps for the, for the sequel. So these uh, intriguing questions that uh, Cheryl's book um, uh, raise relate to the final point I'd like to make. So the work is a, uh, the book is a work of comparative analysis in and of itself, and it makes a significant contributions on those terms. But more than that, I think it can act as a template for further comparative work, work on different policy areas beyond economics and on different committee systems and different chambers around the world. So I think Cheryl's book opens up an important and fruitful comparative research agenda on deliberative accountability and on parliamentary committees more broadly, which will help us get to the heart of what it means for a committee to be effective and how committees contribute to the health or other ways of democracy. So uh, congratulations once again, Cheryl. Uh, I hope everyone goes off to order the book, um, if not for themselves, then for their library and puts it on their uh, reading list. Thank you so much, Stephen. Um, now we'll hear from our, our second commenter, um, Lord Andrew Terry. Thank you very much. And um, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity, Cheryl, to say a few words. Um, it's always refreshing when anyone takes notice of work one's been doing over some years uh, in public life. And this book does take some notice of what I attempted to do. Um, uh, I haven't seen such a thorough study of accountability um, and particularly what you describe as deliberative accountability before, and it's filled a gap. So those are um, two good reasons for saying thank you, Cheryl. Um, I'm a poacher turned gamekeeper turned poacher. I've done, I've been on both sides this I've sat and been cross-examined many times and done my share of cross-examining um, both on the Treasury Committee and on other committees. Um, when we talk about how to secure consent um, and I think it's important to use that word it's, it's worth bearing in mind that these things vary hugely with public mood. Um, when the Banking Commission was set up, um, the mood was to go and get a banker and get him in an orange jumpsuit, and even that was too good for him. The um, purpose, part of the purpose of the Banking Commission was to serve as a decompressor of public discontent. Uh, there was no shortage of public attention, but it was one of the jobs of the committee, of that commission, to demonstrate that people who had made 
major mistakes, perhaps willfully, um, should be shown to have paid some price for. And that, one might argue, is not the day-to-day -day job of a select committee, but it's certainly something that crops up from time to time. Um, I've got numerous uh, scattergun points, but what I thought I'd do is just say something on this question of trust for a moment, only very briefly. And then I just want to look at what I think the underlying purpose of accountability really is. And then I want to suggest some ways in which accountability can be strengthened by select committees. And then I think that flags up a couple of areas for further study. Uh, Stephen's thrown up a few, and I like all of his questions. We want everybody watching this to be thinking that they can't just go away and have a quiet afternoon. They've got to get on with some work and uh, do some of the follow-up. Just on trust, yes, it is significant that uh, in some ways that trust doesn't seem to have improved with an improvement of accountability. Um, but you've got to look at what the counterfactual might have been. Where would trust be if we hadn't had at least some scrutiny? Um, trust is pretty fragile anyway, and there are many measures showing that and has been for quite a while um, in public discourse. I, I think it's helpful to look at a number of other causes Digital communication is often flagged up, but I think a decline in deference, which on the whole I am um, supportive of, and also an increase in educational standards and preparedness, therefore, and, and uh, ability to articulate um, discontent, has a good deal to do with the apparent decline in trust uh, as measured uh, by um, survey data. So I'm not as concerned about that issue as many might be. Um, I think um, when it comes to what we're really trying to achieve, you can see what I've said there on both the first two points I've made gives you some indication. I'm not at all pessimistic about the fact that we've made some inroads with the development of select committees. It's very important to bear in mind also I'm leaping around from point to point, that these are very recent innovations for the UK to have committees of any influence at all whatsoever. Um, most countries got into this game in the 19th century as part of the development of their uh, of democracy, of um, mass democracy, late 19th century, in America's case, earlier than that. Uh, but in the UK, select committees were of nugatory uh, power and not even shadowing specific departments before 1979. And they only really became powerful in 2010, with one or two exceptions. Um, they only became powerful after that. And that was because the power of the whips um, was substantially circumscribed by the um, decision by David Cameron under strong pressure from George Young and me to introduce election by secret ballot of the whole House of Select Committee Chairman, 
which gave them an independent voice in Parliament, which hitherto they hadn't had. had. Up to that point, their continued uh, chairmanship in those their respective jobs was entirely dependent on the whim of the whips who could remove them um, just by tabling something on the order paper. Um, and it's, it needs to be borne in mind that when, again, when we're talking about whether all this accountability at select committees is really as we would like it to be, well, I'm sure it's not. But the alternative that we had in the UK before was stylized exchanges on the floor of the House and its replication in what were often described as holy moribund standing committees. So we've moved really relatively sharply by British standards because we don't do anything in a quasi-constitutional area quickly a very long way towards having much higher levels of public discourse in Parliament in a form much more digestible, uh, digestible for the electorate uh, as a whole. Um, I said I'd say something about what the purpose of accountability is. Um, and I've talked about consent. I think it is primarily to secure consent. And by far the most important area where it performs that it is with respect to unelected bodies with huge power, quangos, of which the Bank of England is the largest. Power once scrutinized can mobilize at least acquiescence, if not consent, and legitimize decisions that are taken um, and provide some moral authority for the decisions that have been taken. And without um, some public explanation for those decisions, demonstrably required of people who've taken them, it, it's unlikely that consent in the long run will be secured for these huge delegations of power that have taken place, particularly in the UK, but across the whole of the industrialized world. Um, the second purpose, it, it seems to me, of accountability is to improve the policy. First, for example, by making sure the people conducting the policy are of high quality, and that's why appointment hearings uh, and then regular um, appearances before committees are so important. High quality people on the whole do better. It's rare that low quality people are consistently given a drubbing on a select committee. It happens and some very good people have been maltreated. I'm thinking particularly of the former head of HMRC before the PAC, where I think some of the cross-examination was um, unfair and unreasonable, um, and that where a, more than one high-quality person from HMLC didn't get a fair hearing. But I think those are the exceptions. Um, good people tend, in the end, they learn the skill, if they appear regularly, of being able to present themselves and what they're trying to accomplish reasonably well in front of select committees. But of course, it's not you, you improve policy indirectly by appointing good people. You can improve it directly by flagging up that no public explanation can be provided for a particular policy. Now, it, that, that would wash um, if articulated. And I've witnessed that happening. Well, why did you do this? Yes, but why did you do this? And, you know, what possible public benefit could have accrued from this decision X? Um, is a question which 
most people should be able to answer if they've taken those decisions. Um, the, it is the case that a number of decisions can't be explained easily, if at all, in front of a select committee at a particular time. And, but those, again, are exceptions rather than the rule. And they're often things where decisions were taken on the basis of, of information which can't be made publicly available, again, not always. And where that's the case, trust, back to our point, trust is crucially important if one is going to secure consent for the, those decisions. Uh, a third purpose of accountability, it seems to me, through select committees, is to contribute to public discourse, um, including discourse on party lines in a less stylized way than takes place on the chamber uh, in the, in the, on the floor of the house. Now, the, implicitly, your book is quite critical of fiscal, of the way fiscal policy is scrutinized. Fiscal policy is always partisan, highly partisan. It goes right to the heart of the moral um, arguments for voting one way or another. They are about the distribution of resources and tax and spend. Uh, uh, and it is therefore inevitable that any discussion of them will be partisan. What you want, though, is that partisan discussion to take place in a way which enables people to make political choices on the basis of um, um, quite detailed and uh, thorough information, certainly more than they obtain from uh, the two or three minutes they might get on the Today programme. And I think that that is to some degree being accomplished. And the criticisms of fiscal policy scrutiny in Parliament, are, and there have been a number, not least by the Institute of Government, um, are largely overdone. Of course, there's huge room for improvement, but the idea that it goes unscrutinized or that it's all just a load of um, um, people throwing pasties at one another is a, a long way from the truth. Um, I said I'd say something about how to boost the powers of select committees. I mean, if we're saying that they're not doing a very good job now, it might be because they haven't got the tools they need to accomplish it. Here are some suggestions. One is, and you do touch on this in the book, I think written exchanges accompanied by transparency is a relatively undeveloped tool. Uh, are uh, in in um, select, uh, in in the select committee toolbox, and I think there's scope for developing that and formalising it substantially. And I did try to accomplish that by writing quite a large number of letters, much more, much far more than most select committee uh, chairmen have in the past, to try and el elicit information that might one, one might. Uh, think the public should be interested or would be interested in. Secondly, and back to this confidentiality point again, there must be better means of enabling select committees to obtain access to confidential papers under restricted conditions, under conditions that can give reasonable, um, that, that provide reasonable care for the confidentiality, whether it's commercial or of some other type. We might or someone might decide to study the Intelligence and Security Committee in this context. Um, the Bank of England is another um, 
uh, area which is worth a look at the um we sent people in to look at confidential papers in the bank of england um and asked them to report back to us uh, on what they had seen without us having access to them to give us confidence and so that we in turn could give confidence to the public that what the bank had said it had done to clear up a problem had in fact been cleared up um, and I think that that was largely successful. And building on that, committees could appoint investigators or specialists acting on their behalf to embed themselves in a quango after serious failings by that quango, particularly where there are serious multiple failings. This is extensively used by regulators in the United States, particularly in the financial field. And it could be developed by Parliament to regulate the regulators. Again, we did this with respect to the inquiries we undertook on HBOS and RPS. We embedded people in the FCA or FSA as then was initially uh, to try and find out what had really been going on with powers to look at any paper or speak to anybody. Um, the uh, use of parliamentary privilege is discussed in the book. Um, one of the things that you don't discuss, as far as I know at all, but I haven't read the whole book, is the limits to parliamentary privilege caused by the fact that the protection afforded to the witnesses um, doesn't extend to other jurisdictions. And so, for example, you might have somebody from a financial institution in front of you who uh, could be held accountable for the same thing that one's inquiring about in a US court. And they might be quite happy to tell you under uh, conditions of parliamentary privilege why they did X, but they may be thinking, I don't know where this is going to lead um, when that gets used in an American court. Um, I, I've got several others of these, but I'll stop there for the time being. There are four ways in which I think select committees might boost their powers in the years ahead. Um, I think perhaps, well, maybe I'll just say one more. If you look at the, one thinks of it's all very easy. You're sitting there and you're asking these questions and you don't have to answer them. Actually, it's quite difficult thinking, working out what the right question is. And in any case, you have a couple of researchers to help you. On the other side, there's a whole panoply of um, people. There's an asymmetry of resources. I think Parliament might consider creating a group uh, or some kind of um, NAO-like body much smaller sitting within Parliament. And I've written about this in a recent pamphlet called Regulating the Regulators. But I, I want to end just by throwing out a couple of areas for further uh, study. One is to look at that asymmetry, uh, particularly with respect to Quangos and how it's growing and how the complexity of what Parliament is now expected to look at could be acting as a considerable restraint on getting to the truth of a whole range of issues. Um, 
And related to that, whether Parliament might need powers, select committees might need to acquire powers to obtain papers where they are deliberately withheld or to uh, force witnesses to come where they refuse. Dominic Cummings is one such at the moment. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. Like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Um, I think that whole area deserves further study. A second, which I think is one of the most interesting and most elusive, and which, because it's elusive, isn't covered much in the book, is to develop the influence that intra-party discourse and pressure brought to bear by select committees by parties on their respective members plays in the role of select committees and how they go about performing the accountability job. I've mentioned the appointment process and how the whips have been taken out of that to some degree, but only to some degree. Many select committee chairmen get elected wanting to become a minister. Um, Many members of select committees uh, want this, that or the other sooner or later, or conversely don't want to be um, find themselves in trouble with their whips uh, and therefore tend to be malleable. So these committees, which were a very limited value until election, can still be influenced a great deal from outside. Um, I think it's worth looking at carefully at how the chairmanship of these committees is shared out between um, the respective parties on the basis of the balance in the House. Uh, and a comparison with the US is instructive here, where once one party has a majority on select committees, all the chairmanships move in one go. And whether the UK approach of select committees becomes become more powerful would be sustainable, or whether we will find ourselves dragged down the US route, and what the merits and demerits of each are. Um, and the third area I would look at is to look at the extent to which um, you will find part political parties active in trying to influence what questions are asked or not asked, and uh, which, who, which witnesses are called or not called, and if so, how frequently. All of these questions are um, the, the stuff of party political discussion behind closed doors, very difficult to research, but very important in trying to establish the extent to which select committees are really getting to the bottom of things, are really succeeding in holding people to account uh, and therefore assisting with the bolstering of public trust. Why don't I stop there? Chairman. Thanks so much, um, and thanks thanks to both of our um, our commenters for your really fantastic um, fantastic comments. Uh, I'm going to first encourage members of the audience to submit questions in the Q and A, um, and in the meantime, I'll hand it over to Cheryl for some uh, brief responses.
Thanks. Um, uh, Stephen and Andrew, thank you so much. Um, these are brilliant comments and I, I probably will only kind of hit the, the tip of the iceberg, but let me start, let me start with correcting one, one thing that Andrew, I think maybe, um, I can see why you thought that this was in part a critique of, of the UK select committees. Actually, this whole project began because the US committees were doing so badly. And I wrote the book on the US committees, basically concluding that they do a pretty poor job, uh, at least the House Financial Services Committee and the Senate Banking Committee of holding the Fed to account. And there's some and, great, great quotes from Don yeah. Cohn in here. Yeah, exactly. So exactly on that point. Exactly. So I came into this book initially thinking, wait a minute, I'm sure the UK does a better job than the US. I'm pretty sure I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure. And so the first, actually the first chapter of this book, which never actually made it into the book is a separate article, is actually comparing both the, uh, the, the two US committees against the, the Treasury Select Committee during the time of the financial crisis, kind of largely defined 06 to 09. And hands down, Treasury Select Committee does spectacularly better than the two uh, US committees. And, and I mean, there's a lot, lot of reasons for that. One is just the size, the sheer, I mean, what in the House committee, you've got like 72 members on the Senate committee, something like 25, 23. Um, and then, the, you know, in, in, the, in Congress, they're coming and going, so they don't even hear each other's questions. So you have a repeat of questions. They read out statements, um, you know, long-winded statements, all sorts of things that, that really put a damper on deliberative quality in, in the U.S. committees. And it's, and it's just a lot of partisan point scoring. Um, and, so, and so actually, the U.K. committees do really well. And so I came away from looking at that comparison during the period of financial crisis thinking, right, well, maybe that was only during the financial crisis. Maybe in normal times, the UK committees really don't do such a good job. Hence the start of this book and then kind of the variation among the types of economic policy and then across the chambers. So, so bottom line is, I think the UK committees actually still do a good job, at least relative to, to the US committees. Um, and partly, I think Stephen had mentioned this too, is that you know, the UK committees are, the subcommittees are special focus. I mean, you know, scrutiny oversight is, is what they do, whereas the US committees are multipurpose. I mean, they also draft legislation. And so you have this very porous um, uh, structure, institutional structure for the US committees where you have a lot of lobbying going on. Uh, of the US committees. In fact, whole swathes of Dodd-Frank were just written by lobbyists. Anyway, anyway, whole other story. So, so just to correct you, actually, even when you look at it quite carefully, you know, the UK does a pretty good job. Uh, so that's kind of my, my, my bottom line. But the, I mean, just a couple of other things that I, that I might mention um, as, I'm, as I'm going. I was intrigued Andrew, when you'd mentioned the, um, you know, the argument why, at least you thought why um, trust had declined and that this was not necessarily a bad thing, declining deference and increasing educational standards. So you, 
you might you might be right i think probably 24 7 news media social media you could throw that into the mix but here's uh, i mentioned digital yeah so one thing i will mention i i'm not sure that the increasing educational standards um, has really held up against other forces. And here it harkens back to a much earlier book that I wrote on the repeal of the Corn Laws. And if you go back and you look at what was said with the Anti-Corn Law League and, and among the electorate and, and in the debates and stuff, it was far more sophisticated in terms of taking on board the arguments of the classical economists. And so to some extent, and I'm not the first one to, to kind of identify this, there's been a bit of a dumbing down, at least relative to 150 years ago, of, of a lot of the, the public discourse when it comes to um, economic policies. Now, anyway, that's a whole other thing we could talk about at some other time, over dinner, over drinks, whatever. Um, but the, the last point that I'll, it's sort of a two-part thing, is partly what, Steph, what Stephen had mentioned, and, and I think, Andrew, you picked it up in a different regard. And it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult one. So when Stephen was saying um, that, you know, is enhanced trust in government necessarily a good thing? We kind of like to think that it's a good thing, but in pointing to the Osborne man, you know, um, exchange, you could imagine a different research design where you could sort of selected these really contentious, combative, um, acrimonious exchanges and rather than, and this was in my nonverbal chapter, when I said, actually, when you look at this in an experimental setting, the respondents turn off. They think, you know, if they're just at each other, just doing a bunch of arguing, well, plague on both houses, you know, I'm going to be, you know, and you can understand, you can kind of understand that. That's, that's not an unusual reaction, right? And that was the reaction of the respondents in a, in a lab setting. But you could look at that with a different research design and say, Actually, let's kind of extract those really contentious ones and see down the road what happened. Like outside the hearings, what happened to the policy? What you know? What happened later on? And that would be super fascinating, I think, um, because then you start to really tease out the medium-term, longer-term effect, which I think would be super interesting. Um, the there was a tack on part and. Uh, oh, right. So in terms of the purpose, you know, of the hearings, accountability. And I thought it was interesting, Andrew, when you said that it was a, a decompressor of public discontent. That's, that's quite a phrase, a decompressor of public discontent. Um, and it's kind of a nice way to say you sort of like making them forget about it. Maybe you're sort of devoting a lot of attention to it so that they get bored into, you know, apathy perhaps, and time goes by and people forget that they were all so hot and bothered about X issue and they move on to something else. Cause some, you know, whatever banking commission or something else looked into it and did it and they're like, fine, fine. It's been sorted and whatever. So I wouldn't argue that that's not the case, um, but it's, an interesting way to think about the purpose of accountability. I'm not, I'm not totally convinced by that, but maybe, maybe. Anyway, so I'll, I, I could say more, but I'll, I'll leave it at that. And hopefully there might be some questions from the audience. Great, thank you. So 
I will, I'll give you questions um, two at a time, maybe. Um, first of all, I, I will maybe um, pose, pose to you a question from, from Stephen's comments that I, I thought was a really great, great question. I hope I'm doing it justice here. Um, should we normatively want to see deliberative accountability lead to increased trust in government if, suppose, uh, government is not actually showing itself to be worthy of that trust? What should we, what should we think um, normatively um, or about that relationship that, that you talk about between, between accountability and trust in, in such a setting? Um, and, then, and then second, so um, this is a question from Kamil Jonski at the University of Lodz, Poland. Um, do you think that scholars tend to overemphasize issues of processes, whereas say ordinary people tend to focus more on outcomes, in particular big outcomes, um, perhaps because of a role of cognitive problems and or rational inattention? Sorry, I haven't fully understood the second question. Can you say that again? Um, don't you think that scholars tend to overemphasize issues of processes, whereas people, I'm editorializing here, ordinary people tend to focus on outcomes, in particular big things as cognitive problems and or rational inattention plays a role? Can I have a go? Then maybe, maybe Andrew and Stephen might have thoughts on them as well. So, um, on the, and they're kind of related, actually, these two questions are, are related. So, um, right, should we expect or should we want, I guess, in a normative way, um, the deliberative accountability to lead to more trust if, if it's not warranted, right? If, if they don't deserve it. Um, no, <laughs> no. Uh, but, but the point is, you know, we kind of want to make sure that the process is not messing things up. Right is not is not the problem. So so if they're if they're really rubbish, then yeah, call them out. If they're just making rubbish decisions and it's rubbish outcomes, and so yeah, call them out. But if they're actually doing you know making good decisions and whatever, and it's all very complicated, and actually there are constraints that need to be understood, and blah blah blah, and and that process is important for actually understanding the kind of outcomes we get then actually maybe we really do need to understand that process. And maybe by understanding that process, we then start to understand why we don't live in this glorious outcome world that we would like and that the reality limits what's possible. Which brings me on to the, the, to the second question, which again, I would say, you know, yeah, spot on, you know, scholars do definitely, um, folk, well, not all scholars focus, focus on process, a lot of focus on a lot of the things and institutions and whatever, whatever, and, you know, voting behavior and a lot of other stuff. Um, but for sake of argument here, what I am focusing on certainly is, is the process. And so you could say, forget about the process, right? You know, let's, let's look at the outcomes. Now, most certainly the outcomes are simpler, um, but the outcomes can also be changing and when do we define an outcome as an outcome because time's always evolving and and you know then outcome in time a may be a different thing in time b and so on so we may even dispute which outcome we're talking about 
Um, and so, you know, there may not be agreement on that, but sometimes simply focusing on the process, if we agree that the process was the right process, like voting behavior, you know, if we, if we agree that the process of voting was legitimate, that it was done properly, then even if, you know, the person we didn't want to get into office got in, then we accept that as a legitimate outcome because we buy into the process, right? So, but I get the point, I get, you know, anyway. I'll, I'll leave it at that for them. Great. I'll, um, I'll pick two more for the next round. Um, here's a question from Anthony, LSE external alum. Um, could deliberative accountability get to the heart of decisions made to or not to check the bona fides of companies given COVID loans? Um, for example, the case mentioned by Lord Ahmad, who resigned over four billion pounds in uncollected fraud in government COVID loans. Um, so, is there potential? Could there be potential for for deliberative accountability in such a setting? And then, Hannah, PhD student from Oxford, if you, Cheryl, were to advise policymakers on how to generate better accountability, what would you recommend that they do? Okay. So um, on the first one, the, well, the, the COVID loans, okay, I'm not an expert in, uh, other than what I read in newspapers on, on the COVID loans and who got what and who shouldn't have gotten what and who got too much and so on and so forth. But I'm, I'm not entirely, well, you could break that down in terms of who received them as simply, uh, you know, a paper filling exercise in simply, you, you just need to fill in some, some basic data in terms of look at the books because what was received and, you know, kind of just do some data gathering on that. However, the deliberative part could come in in terms of the process for making those decisions. Now, unfortunately, making those decisions, as I understand it, like I say, I'm not an expert on those loans, and, but from what I understand, it was, it was certainly done very quickly under time constraints and, you know, deaths building, um, public anxiety building. So I can understand that if you ever wanted to have a time where, where there was not methodical uh, and lengthy time for deliberation and so on, in the middle of an international crisis is probably a prime spot for things maybe to go awry. Um, that doesn't excuse it. Um, but it's, you know, there's whole literature, I have to say, on crisis decision-making and things that go wrong in crisis decision-making. Um, I'm not an expert in that field, but you can definitely look at that and probably the COVID loans would come under that category. Um, what would I advise policymakers to do? Okay, I'm gonna go out on a limb here. What the heck? Um, so I was quite, careful in the conclusion of the book, but I thought to rather, okay, I'm not a radical person, but I, for me, you know, they were kind of radical things to be even hinting at. One was, um, and in spite of what Andrew Tyree had said about fiscal policy, and, and I know I use a quote, Andrew, from you, you know, they said about the Osborne thing, and we did a really go good job. We, you know, challenged him. And so I do use a quote, and I understand where you're coming from. But fiscal policy isn't really an area where 
you know, in the space of reasonably whatever hour to hour whatever hearing that you're really going to be able to have an understanding of the reasons for the policy decisions that were made by the treasury by the chancellor or is that really the best way and format and if it's not you know or if really just the 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 tendency to to um partisan jabs you know show your party colors um you know whatever you know if it's really about that and it's a bit staged in that regard then might that really be contributing to a declining public trust because it seems to be a bit of a show right the chancellor comes in wants to answer you know his it's always his now so so far um sort of you know questions has a has a set speech more or less and is going to stick to his points regardless of whatever the questions that were asked now is that really going to engender trust probably not um and so you think well what's the point now that doesn't mean throw out accountability but rather it does say maybe we should think about accountability in other ways we do have political accountability unfortunately it's not that frequent we can vote the bums out um at elections but that's not as frequent um we could do the sort of thing you, you know andrew that you had suggested maybe combine written responses with oral responses maybe that might be an idea but the radical thing the first radical thing that i i thought i kind of said in the conclusion was maybe we should consider just doing away with um hearings accountability hearings on fiscal policy. That's kind of a radical thing. I'm not sure I totally believe that myself, but I know Andrew doesn't, so you might have some thoughts on that. So that's one radical thing, okay? The second one, which is also radical, this will this will annoy another set of the audience, and, and but in part, it kind of comes to the defense of the House of Lords. So of course, you've got this whole literature and you know calls for doing away with the House of Lords. And actually, if you see deliberative accountability as across the chambers, as being kind of a specialization of roles, and you have the House of Lords being pretty good relative to the comments at deliberation in the sense of that deliberative scholars think of deliberation, and you think about the comments being quite good at accountability, in other words, having a bite for holding policymakers to mouth, and kind of having a comparative advantage of both of those is not a bad way forward. So indirectly, it's a, indirectly, it's a little bit of a defense for, yay ho, let's keep the House of Lords. So anyway, those are two somewhat radical provocative implications. Um, but Andrew, you're making lots of faces. You, you may want to reply <laughs> or not. Okay, well, let's just say a few things. If you, sorry, Stephen, did you want to say something? I haven't spoken. Are you sure? Okay. Um, well, I, I just going through a whole heap of points that have been made, I'll just answer as many as I can. On the question, George Osborne and co turning up saying whatever they fancy and just ignoring the uh, questions, it's the job of a chair of the select committee to um, deal with this uh, and to interrupt and say that wasn't the question, get back to the question. And if uh, he persists to say, well, this meeting is no longer 90 minutes, it's now three hours. Um, uh, and uh, you'll be here for as long as it 
takes back to the question of power to summon people. Um, so, and it's back to the point I made about behind the scenes negotiations that take place before hearings about exactly how they'll be conducted, how long for. Okay, all of that area is a subject for a, a deep discussion, but those aren't total solutions to this problem. But there is a price attached to being extremely stubborn, which is that members of the public notice and may decide to um, mark down the party or person who's behaving that way, as might the whips uh, when deciding who to recommend for promotion. Now, you've started at the top there more or less with the Chancellor, but other ministers are always thinking about how they can get a, you know, the next rung up the ladder. Uh, and in any case, though what you've described there is not available to the vast majority of witnesses, mainly to a relatively small number. Um, the point that Stephen made about don't we want deliberative, deliberative accountability sometimes to reduce trust in government, I think we just need to distinguish here, I think there's a bit of confusion going on between uh, trust in a decision and trust in uh, the wider process of accountability. The fact that the uh, something terrible might have been exposed uh, shouldn't do any harm to the process of accountability. I think it might bolster it, but it should do quite a lot of good uh, if you're if it's done well. And um, at the same time, you can expose bad policy, as I was suggesting earlier, which because the risk might have might take there might be a risk that it will be exposed alters in turn the way policy is made in the beginning generally for the better um and that in a sense is part of my answer to this question of scholars overemphasizing process which i won't linger on um could deliberative accountability be used to get to the bottom of covid loans or indeed any other issue well i think it's uh, all we've got, and it's quite a powerful tool. Ex post scrutiny is not one of the, I named a handful of tools for um, generating better accountability. I think there were five, but one might add a sixth, which is greater use of ex post scrutiny. Uh, take someone who has to take a decision that's extremely secret at the time, uh, like collaboration with the uh, Americans to um, do something with the, uh, the government's reserves, um, but uh, after, but which can be made public after an interval. Um, the ex post scrutiny of the way you went about that decision will influence the way the decision is taken at the beginning, and so ex post scrutiny is extremely important for future policy conduct and needs to be developed much more than it is uh, developed at the moment. Um, a few more uh, points. Um, just on your question of how great the debates were in um, during the period of the repeal of the Corn Laws, it's worth pointing out that Britain wasn't a democracy, really. Only a small few percent of the electorate were voting. And it, they so it, we were in a very different environment in which public discourse took place among readers of the Times, which had a virtual monopoly on information um, beyond Parliament, 
where written material was relatively sparse anyway, and where what you heard in public debate was basically all you were going to get, and where the overwhelming majority of people who participated in those things came from the same intellectual and social class or group of gentrified classes. Not entirely so, there are some exceptions to that. Indeed, one of the greatest of them all in the Corn Lords debate um, was Richard Cobden, who, of course, came from relatively a relatively poor uh, semi-agricultural background. His father was um, um, a sunken, uh, low middle class guy um, who failed. Um, incidentally, Richard Cobden went to do the boys' hall. I don't know whether you know that, but the, the very school which he ended up in, uh, where he was sent there to, to Yorkshire, um, by an uncle who took pity on uh, on him. He was then sent to just about the worst school in the country where he nearly died of starvation and malnutrition. was then rescued a year later. None of his letters ever got back. Um, he is an amazing guy and the whole story, I'm sure you're deep into this, um, but he's an exception to what I've just said. Basically, there, it was a discussion among um, a very like-minded class of people. Fiscal policy and plague on both your houses, these brick-bat exchanges, um, reduce people's respect for politics. I'm not sure about that even. Again, it's back to decompression. I think people, when it comes to the things that really motivate them to uh, vote, often want to hear their prejudices articulated. And that's what they get sometimes uh, in select committees. Um, and are you ambivalent about acting, uh, allowing or encouraging select committees to act as a decompressor of public discontent and indeed parliament as a whole? I don't think you should be too concerned. The alternative uh, is that people find ways of expressing their discontent uh, in antisocial ways, in street protest or worse, uh, going around to people's houses and throwing paint and this sort of thing, which, uh, or even violence, which we had quite a bit of, or at least a bit of in the Brexit debate. So um, public discourse through select committees does play a role uh, in, uh, in really serious cases to, uh, of acting as a decompressor. House of Lords, um, would be the last one I'll touch on. You know, I, I, I've been a poacher and a gamekeeper, and I've now been on both of these. I think you need a subcommittee of the Economic Affairs Committee as well. Um, the House of Lords lacks even the legitimacy to exercise the powers that are currently available to it, and very rarely does so. Um, it, if it's going to remain an appointed chamber, needs to make up its and, and it needs to make up its mind about this. But if it if it's to stay an appointed chamber, it needs to admit that it's an advisory, it's a conseil d'état, it's an advisory council primarily, and not a full singing dancing chamber of parliament. In saying this, of course, I'm a long way away from many of my colleagues in the House of Lords, and I'm sure I'll be ground down and institutionalised in due course. Um, the Legitimacy for decisions and, in, and scrutiny both flow ultimately in 21st century democracies through the ballot box. And 
I think it will remain so. In response to Hannah's question about, yeah. Um, so I think like building on what has already been, been said, um, I mean, if we're talking specifically about economic policy, then, you know, there's been proposals in the past to um, introduce a budget select committee, for example, which they have in other uh, committee systems around the world, but which the UK and sort of like, um, Westminster style systems don't, don't tend to have. And that's been put forward by the procedure committee in the past, um, uh, but has been um, rejected, I think, partly by government, because they don't want the scrutiny, and then partly by some of the select committees because they don't want power taken or attention taken away from them and, and put on this new committee. But I think if you're talking more broadly, that there are serious um, uh, impediments to generating better accounts to generating better accountability. Uh, and so a couple of things you could talk about is the amount of work that MPs are expected to do. So MPs are very time poor. They've got an awful lot of things they're supposed to do. And if I, I, I didn't ask a question about this, but if you look in the, in the appendix of Cheryl's book, you can see the attendance rates for certain of the sessions. And some of them, all 11 members, all 13 members are there. Other times, um, uh, eight members are there. I've been I've I've observed committees where uh, it's a rare occasion, but the, the meeting had to be uh, cancelled because it wasn't quorum. So MPs are very have got a lot on, and so they they might not attend as much, and when they do attend, they might not be as well prepared as they um, could be. Now, for some people being on select committees, some MPs being on select committees like the be all and end all, and you know that's their main focus of their um of being an MP but for other MPs it's not so you know issues to do with time and expectations in terms of what MPs are supposed to do are not e easily solvable so unless you take into account the broader um context focusing specifically on select committees in terms of accountability you know there are outside pressures and then similarly you could look at the relationship between the executive and the legislature. So um, I know there's a, quite a big debate about this, but you know I think that parliament is relatively weak in comparison to the executive. And even though other people say, yeah, but what about this, this and this? I still think it is. So if you've got a relatively strong executive, uh, relatively weak legislature, then accountability is going to be more difficult, in my opinion, than if that if the balance in that that relationship is is is, is more equal. So, you know, arguably we got better accountability, better scrutiny um, over the last few years when there was a small majority or or there wasn't a majority. But then that's not that kind of like power of parliament isn't hardwired into the. Uh, the rules and, and procedures of, of parliament and can be easily reversed when there's a big majority. So it, it's, it's difficult because it raises questions about the broader um, structure, broader architecture of the British state and relationship, not only of select committees to other parliamentary work, but the relationship between parliament and other parts of the, of the British state. Thank you. 
So I think I'll pose one more question because I'm told that at the end we'll have a chance to to see the trailer and hopefully see see the visuals this time. But so for for presumably, unless this ends up being being short, presumably the last question. Um, someone asked a two-part question, and I'm going to take one of the parts. So this is from Yushui Feng, University of Oxford, DPhil student. Um, would you say that deliberative, um, uh, deliberative accountability with an emphasis on reason giving for actions could be equally applicable to other accountability mechanisms or other settings? And what do you think some of those might be where this could be a sort of a promising tool? Yes, I mean, I can provide a pretty quick answer. I don't know what other settings um, might be envisaged for this, um, but, it, but in short, you know, I think, I think that most people do like to understand the reasons for the decisions that impact their lives. Um, most of us do not like to be held in the dark. Okay, take an example, you know, sitting on a platform waiting for a train and, you know, you're told it's going to be whatever delay or, or told nothing anyway, but say there's going to be delay, right? Most people would at least like to know the reason for that. Um, you know, was it a signal? Was, you know, somebody ill on the line? What You know, there's that kind of you know, it's not going to change that the train is still going to be half an hour late or whatever, or cancel or whatever, but you're going to feel better about having no train or waiting for the next train or, or whatever. So, so I think that most people do like to, to know the reasons. So that's, that's part of it. So that the reason giving the kind of the deliberative part is the Q and A. So again, using that same example of, you know, the train on the platform that didn't arrive. Um, well, why, why was there a signaling failure? You know, why every time I'm waiting for a train, uh, do I get this message of signaling failure? And, and the only thing that varies is where the signaling failure is, right? Um, why is it? So then you start having the Q&A part of it, right? So even for something as simple as, you know, train delays, we do want to know the reasons for things, but we also want to have some comeback to be able to challenge those. So I actually think it applies in a lot of different settings. Um, I don't know if that was what they had in mind, trading, waiting for trains, but um, it's the one that popped into my head. Any, any thoughts on that from, from Stephen or Lord Tyree? The example I thought of was uh, decisions about academic pensions and um, the deliberation around that. <laughs> about that. Um, can I say a few things? Yeah, I mean, the, we, we've described deliberative accountability as if it is the primary purpose of uh, a select committee. I think it's a very major part. Part of it is to make recommendations and try and influence the uh, direction of government policy, getting to the point about whether parliament is too weak. And it does that primarily by making reports uh, and then uh, uh, and producing that if you can, one can high quality reports and linking up all these points together on the non-attendance of committees because uh, MPs are time poor, absolutely. On the other hand, 
I can assure you, as a former select committee chairman of chaired a lot of these committees, not just the TSC. Um, if you're going to get a unanimous report, and you need unanimity if you want to have influence on the outcomes, and we've just agreed that's one of the key purposes that, uh, of having a select committee in the, in the beginning, you've got to build, If you to get unanimity, you've got to have collegiality. And the smaller the group around the table within reason to achieve that, uh, to, to, that you have to achieve, the more likely you are to get there. So um, committees are probably too large. In my first term, I had to deal with one of 13. Um, I didn't ever say so, but I wasn't disappointed when only 10 was turned up or nine turned up. And uh, on the whole, the attendance rates were higher when the committee was a bit smaller when it was reduced to 11. Um, the time poverty question relates to one of the recommendations I made. If MPs are entirely on their own and just have a scrap of paper put in front of them in order to try and get them by a hearing, the likelihood is um, that they won't make much of a be able to make much of a contribution, particularly if they've got several other things on the go, as they often have. Um, but if they were given better support, uh, they might do better. The PAC has the NAO, I was referring to this. Uh, why does the PAC do well and ask such good questions? Well, it's got the NAO sitting behind it making reports and it's got a small staff who are in constant contact with NAO staff to find out exactly which bits of each report are likely to secure the best penetrative questioning. We in Parliament, I think, in the Commons, when I'm not in the Commons anymore, but the Commons really needs, in my view now, a specialist group to deal with some of the most complex quangos, particularly the financial quangos, um, and to get to grips around, uh, get their, enable the MPs to get their heads around those subjects. Um, I do agree that Parliament uh, is weak in relation to the executive, Stephen. But I also think select committees are a major part of the fight back. And in the last 20 years or so, certainly the last 10 have demonstrated a capacity to play that role. Um, I'd just say one more point on uh, um, other accountability settings to which the framework might be put. Absolutely, isn't it the way that we normally conduct ourselves and isn't what we're doing right now some form of deliberative accountability and certainly it's, it's more than just a deliberation uh, we're uh, expressing views which might influence people and being held to held accountable for them and if you disagree with me Cheryl or Stephen you're going to speak up and tell me why in pretty short order so um, that's how people want to see political decisions taken these days, not in the stylized, and explained, not in the stylized format of the chamber. Um, and it's that um, change in the balance of power between the cha chamber and the select committee corridor, which has been so important for the development of new forms of accountability uh, in um, modern British democracy. I just want to end with one particular point, and which links into my point about decompression of public discontent. 
I can't tell you, well, first of all, you can look up the attendance records of the number of people tuned in to TSC hearings, which were huge during the crash, immediately after the crash, in the period after the crash. I can't tell you the um, penetration that had with the electorate. Wherever you went in the country, uh, frankly, I had become a national figure and one was recognized really quite quickly. And people would come up to you and say, sometimes they'd say, thank you very much for asking the question. I want to have them. Thank you very much for giving those bankers a bashing. They thoroughly deserve it, which is the point I was trying to make earlier. And why haven't you locked them all up already? Uh, and sometimes they would say, what on earth were you doing? Why didn't you ask this? And every now and again, you'd hear somebody say something like that. You think, gosh, yes, why didn't I ask that? That was exactly what I should have asked. So they are very much part of securing wider consent from the electorate, uh, which is absolutely crucial for the stability of any democracy, which we tend to take for granted uh, in um, Anglo-Saxon democracy, but is absolutely, is absolutely crucial that we remain vigilant about. Why don't I stop that? Fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, if you're in the audience, if you hold on for one more moment, we'll, we'll conclude by showing the trailer. But before that, I just want to offer um, really tremendous thanks to Cheryl for sharing her work with us and to uh, both of our speakers for, for sharing comments and thoughts on it today and to all of the audience um, for joining us and to the LSE events team for um, making, sure, making sure all of this worked. Um, so really, really thanks. Thanks to everybody. Thank you very much, Cheryl. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.